I bring you greetings this evening in the precious name of Jesus Christ. I trust that's why we're here. If it wasn't for him, we would not be drawn to come here. It's because of his spirit that we are drawn here. And I'm grateful for his spirit that we can be drawn together this way. I've been blessed this evening and I could have continued to sit back in the back row and listen to this congregate, this choir sing. This is something that's going to continue throughout all eternity. When we get to glory, my friends, preaching as we know it is going to cease. And am I glad? I'll have a rest. But you know what? I want to sing in the choir. I want to sing in the choir a new song. A new song that's got nothing to do with sin. It's a new song, and we don't even know what that contains. But one day we will. We'll be singing with voices that are going to be without limitation. There's not going to be any time to stop for breath. There's not going to be no coughing. And there's not going to be no congestion. We're going to be singing with clarity. It's going to be beautiful. And I want to be there. It makes chills go up and down my back when I think about the fact that Jesus is gone so long to prepare a place for us. And we are invited into the kingdom around the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I don't know what those matches are going to look like, my friends, but it's not the matches I'm looking forward to. I know it's going to be nice if Jesus is there. And the thing I'm looking forward to is to worship at the feet of my Savior. He's the one that is not just my Savior. The brother was sitting beside me tonight, and we had prayer. And he was praying that the Lord Jesus would not just be a Savior to us, but that he would be the Lord of our life. The Lord of our life. There's a difference, my friend. And I've shared in the nice past that Christianity in America, we have affluence, we have freedom, which perhaps has been to our downfall. But the Christianity, as we know, in nominal society in America, is about 3,000 miles wide and about a half a mile deep. It's very shallow. And I trust that we understand the deep things of God, the mystery of God. He's going to give us understanding. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, it says there that He will give us exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think. There's unlimited resources in the kingdom of God. When we think about the things of God and the kingdom of God, there is nothing to do with dividing and subtracting. It's all got to do with adding and multiplying. May the peace of God be multiplied in your hearts in the love of Jesus Christ. I trust this evening you're understanding what that peace is. I'd like to share this evening also the fact we were praying in the back room and there was a young man that brought his three sons in there and I was blessed with that. You know, the thing of it is, if we want our children to continue the faith that we have, we want to try to make it as inviting as possible. The Bible says that we are to train up a child in a way she should go, and when he get older, they will not depart from it. You know, the thing of it is, they may walk away from it for a while, but that will not depart from them. Why? Because it's been saturated with the Holy Ghost, and they have had an experience. They see what the elders are doing. They see what your father and mother are doing, and that is something that's going to stand as good. And I was grateful for that. Little children are not the church of tomorrow. Yes, they are. But they're the church of today. They're a part of us. I don't know what we would do if we would have a congregation, whether we'd have a room set in the back of the church where the mamas could take their babies and play some kind of a playtime zoo with them all time the service. No, we don't have that. We have our children in our services. Why? Because we want them to experience what we're experiencing. The thing of it is, you know, we don't want to lose that. America has lost a lot. We don't want to lose that. We're a strange people. We don't want to be strange, but we want to be peculiar. We want to be separated from what? From sin and evil, the ways of the heathen. My friends, tonight, I pray that you would not learn the way of the heathens. We live in a land that's got a lot of affluence and freedom. And the thing of it is, it's so easy for us to just be sidetracked. There's a lot of temptations out there like never before. I, you know, when I think back, the things that we are, well, the things that we're facing today, back in Switzerland, like 70 years ago, they put up apartment buildings and there was those officials that came in there and they made sure that there was no one, no couples living in their common law. He made sure that there was one night when there was a, there was a boy came and stayed at the parents of a girl he was dating. And by the next morning, they had officials at the door and say this should not be the ordinary boy outside on the streets. And just recently there in Zurich, Switzerland, they made it possible for same-sex marriage. This was less than 70 years. Things have deteriorated, my friends. But what are we going to do? You know, we say that we might as well throw the hands up and live in defeat. No, 
We don't need to do that. As we see the day approaching, you know, the Bible says that the Lord has shortened the days. The very elect are going to be deceived. I believe that we must understand that we are the soul of the earth. And once we've lost our soul in this, we're going to be cast out and trodden under foot of man. Like the brother Nelson shared this morning, Sunday school, salt loses its savor when it becomes diluted. Diluted. We don't want to be diluted. We don't want to be what the EPA is. The solution to pollution is dilution. They're broke. We're rich. Why? Because we're wanting to stay with the authenticity of God's word and not breach it in any way. Not breach it in any way. Tonight I'd like to share with you, if you care to turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 18. I'd like to share with you an account one of those accounts, I'll make it real practical tonight. It's something, I don't preach a lot of theology and big things. I'm not here tonight to make a Mennonite out of you. But we, we do believe in the Trinity in heaven and hell. We do believe in the doctrines, the things you need to repent and bring your sins under the blood of Jesus Christ for you to be saved and become a child of God. And from there, God is going to look to you as an individual, to be responsible and accountable to one another. See, the thing of it is, we live in a time when no one wants to be accountable anymore. We don't want the accountability. Accountability and submission and obedience are words as well as repentance. You don't hear across the pulpit very often. God forbid, I feel like as God's people, even though we're sitting in a room completely with saints, everyone's a Christian. You know what? We still need to hear the words of repentance. Why? Because we are prone to sin. We are human. You know, we live in the flesh. But by God's grace, we live by the Spirit. Amen. Amen. We live by the Spirit. You know, the apostles, I, I believe when they came there, John 17, they wanted to raise up an altar there. They just wanted to raise up stones there. You know, here was God. Here was Jesus with them. They had a tremendous celestial experience. And they just wanted to somehow be eradicated from this world. But Jesus Desire was not that, but that we would stay in this world and he has come that we might have hope and that we can live in this world. My friends, that's why Jesus came. Jesus Christ came to show us exactly the absolute most perfect image of the heart of God. People ask me sometimes, how do you think that Jesus Christ, how do you think God is? We hear of Jesus, we read about Jesus. How do you think God the Father is? What's he like? And I've done some study on that. And that very thing has come to me that God sent His only begotten Son into this world to be atonement for our sins. And His Son learned obedience by the things He suffered. And He died on the cross, my friends. He suffered, my friends. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was laid upon His back, upon Him. He was wounded for our transgressions. He, was, he, was, he died. They crucified Him for our salvation. He rose again for our justification and he sits on the right hand of God and making intercession today. My friends, he's coming again for our glorification. We need to live our lives in sanctification and consecrated under the blood of Jesus Christ if we're going to see him one day. You know, the thing of it is, a lot of people don't want to suffer these days. We want to have everything. To, we want all the ice cream. We all want the frosting off the cake. And everything, the good things. But the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, he says, there that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. I've shared that before. I often hear that. People like to share that. It's because of Jesus Christ's resurrection. that we are, it, was his, it was his crucifixion. The blood that was shed on the cross was for the sin of mankind. All mankind throughout all time that we know time. And the thing of it is, he came, he gave his life. But the thing that gives us victory to live a life that is free from sin, to be in the image of Jesus Christ is that we can accept the fact, the very fact that he is risen again, not by his own power, but by the power of God, the Father. And I'm thankful that we serve a trinity that those, the God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Son and the Spirit are in obedience and they are submissive to the Father. You know, the thing of it is, we are created in mass. Mankind, he's created, he made man. You know, when he made man, you know what he said? He said, let us make man in our image. Who was he talking about? Some, some deity out there that we don't know of? No, he was talking about the Trinity. He was talking about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. We're made as three, we're made in triune beings. We're made of body, soul, and spirit. 
We can communicate with God because when he breathed into the nostrils of man, there was something breathed into man that they're able to relate to God. We understand that that relationship, that beautiful relationship in the garden was broken because of sin. And we're grateful tonight that we don't have to live in guilt. Mankind left to the endemic nature is going to be living in sin and guilt from here on out unless they repent. The Bible gave us direction in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. He gave us the first hint that there is going to be a Savior. There's going to be redemption. And we're grateful for that this evening, that He sent His Son, that we can be redeemed. Tonight, if you're not redeemed, I feel sorry for you. And yet I ask you and I plead with you tonight that you would repent in the name of Jesus Christ. You know the thing of it is, we cannot repent just in word. We need to have an attitude of repentance. We need to live a life of penitence. We need... We need to humble ourselves, and that's so hard for us to do. Why? Because there's pride in our life. The Bible says that we are not to be of the world. We know that there's the, sin of, there's the sin of pride. Let's not be like the world. Love not the world, neither the things of the world. For in the world, there is the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eye and the pride of life. The very three things that Jesus was tempted with in John when he was up there and the devil tempted him, when he was fasting, in the very same things, those three things, you do some research on it. You know the thing of it is, it's the pride of flesh, the flesh, the life, the pride of the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. Those three things, I will, that's not my message tonight, but it just come to my mind. In those very areas is what John, the epistle, speaks about in 1 John, in chapter 2, verse 15 to 17. He speaks about that. It's the very thing our Savior suffered. And there is something that is... Ex- that is exuberating about that. Because we have a Savior that was tempted and suffered in all areas like as we. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, 4, verse 12, verse 4. It says that we have not a high priest that cannot be the t- touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but that he was tempted in all sin like as we are, and yet in all things like as we are, and yet without sin. He did not deviate. He did not deviate. And by the way, people think when Jesus came down to us somehow that there are big colleges and there's theologies out there teaching and they're denying the deity of Jesus Christ. I'm telling you tonight that by Jesus Christ coming and giving his life, he was God incarnate. He came as for John 1 says. He came and as we accept him, we become the sons and daughters of God through him. He did not come to take away the old law, but to fulfill it. He came to put flesh and bones on. He came to put flesh on there and blood, warmth, something that we can serve him to see how God is. The thing of it is, there are colleges out there today that are teaching and preaching that, uh, that, that Jesus, came, Jesus Christ came down. And by doing that, that he minimized his deity. And I'll tell you tonight, for a fact, that Jesus Christ came without minimizing one bit of his deity. Amen. If Jesus Christ wasn't the Son of God, we would not have the hope of redemption. We would not have the hope that the sacrifice that he made would be good enough for us. We would be looking, and people do. In Hebrews chapter 10, it talks there that we need not to take the blood of Jesus Christ underfoot. Where was the blood put at the Passover? It was on the doorpost of the lentil. Why? It was beside us and above us, and we are not to take it to the doorpost. We are on the the threshold. We're not to take it underfoot, trodden underfoot a man. It's a sacrilege to do that. It's sacrilege to teach anything but the Word of God. That's too strong in 2018. Is it? No. We need to become intentional. What is it going to be like when you, my dear friends, tonight, when you stand before the magistrate and the authorities, when they're questioning your faith. The thing of it is, I do believe that we are in a window of opportunity right now that is like never before. But I do believe, my friends, it's closing. And I pray, I pray for our dear children and grandchildren and all of us that we might stand because one day I do believe our faith is going to be called up. And what will it be? We can hide behind our nice clothes and we can hide behind Christian parents and so forth, but it will not stand the test of time. We need to be real and repent and to be willing to give our lives if that's what it takes. Who all tonight is willing to do that? I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands. It's pretty revealing. But tonight you know in your heart, you say, 
that I'm willing to give my life for the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you? Are you? Are you happy and rejoice when you're reviled and persecuted? For his name's sake, not our own undoings. Doesn't feel good, does it? I need to concentrate on my message here. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, I'd like to read the whole chapter. I'll give you some time to rest. But in resting, I would like you to understand a few things. As we're reading, and when I'm done, I will ask you what the problem was. And this very problem, my friend, is something that has divided many relationships. And may I say to God's dismay, congregations, in chapter 18 of 1 Samuel, And it came to pass, when he had made an end to speaking unto Saul, this was Samuel, or David. This was just after, this was just after David's victory with Goliath. And it came to pass, after speaking, when he had made an end to his speaking to Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his very own soul. It was more than just liking him, but it was almost becoming as a one with him. And Saul took him that day, that Jonathan's father, and he would not, he would let him go no more home to his father's house. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. There was a tremendous depth there. In verse 4, and Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him and gave it to David and his garments, even to his uh, sword and his bow, bow and his girdle. And David went out whithersoever Saul sent him. He was very obedient and behaved himself wisely. And Saul, it says, set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And it came to pass as they came that David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistines, that the women came out, it says, of all the cities of Israel, they were singing and dancing, and to meet King Saul with tabrets, it says, and joy, and with instruments of music. And the women answered one another as they played and said, Saul hath slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very wroth. And say, that saying displeased him. And he said, They have ascribed unto David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed but thousands. And what can he have more than the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day forward. And it came to pass on the morrow that the evil spirit of, from God came upon Saul, and he prophesied in the midst of the house, and David played with his hand as off the other times, and there was a javelin in Saul's hand. And Saul cast his javelin, for he said, I will smite David even to the wall with it. And David avoided it of his presence twice. He got out of there twice. It's like you take a pin and you pin a fly to the wall. That's a very small statement. But when you think of pinning someone to the wall with a javelin, that's terrible. Verse 12, it says Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him and he was departed from Saul. Remember that he was departed from Saul. Therefore Saul removed him from him and made him the captain over a thousand. He went out and came in before the people. And David behaved himself, it says, wisely in all his ways. And the Lord was with him. Wherefore, when Saul saw that he... Remember what I'm saying here. When Saul saw that David behaved himself wisely, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. And Saul said to David, Behold, my elder daughter, Merab, her will I give thee to wife. Only be thou valiant, it says, for me, and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul said, Let not my hand be upon him, but let the hand of the Philistines be upon him. There you read treachery. Verse 18, And David said unto Saul, Who am I? Who am I, and what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be the son-in-law of the king? But it came to pass as a time when Mirab, Saul's daughter, should have been given, given to David, that she was given to Adriel, Beholiot, to wife, and Michelle, it says, Meshiel, Saul's daughter, loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. 
And Saul said, I will give her him to her, that she may be a snare to him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Wherefore Saul said to David, Thou shalt this day be my son-in-law in the one of the twain. And Saul commanded his servants, saying, Commune with David secretly. And see, it says, Say, Behold, the king hath delight in thee, and all thy servants love thee. They were buttering him up. Now therefore be the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spake these words in the ears of David. And David said, Seemeth it to be a light thing to be the king's son-in-law, seeing that I am a poor man and lightly esteemed? And the servants of Saul told him, saying, On that manner spake David. David was a man that was poor in spirit. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. People wonder what that means. It means poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, verse 3. And the servants of Saul told him, it says, saying, on this matter spake David. And Saul said, thus shall ye say to David, the king desireth not any dowry, but a hundred foreskins of the Philistines to be avenged. Of the king's enemy. But Saul thought to make David fall by the hands of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. And the days were not expired. He went right to work. Wherefore, it says, David arose and went, he and his men, and they slew of the Philistines, not just a hundred, but it says two hundred, two hundred men. And David brought their foreskins. And it says they gave them full tale to the king that they might be the, that he might be the king's son-in-law. And Saul, it says, gave him Mishael, his daughter, to wife. And Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Mishael, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul was yet the more afraid of David. And Saul became David's enemy continually. And the princes of the Philistines went forth. And it came to pass after they went forth that David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was much set by. He had an impeccable reputation. There was something, and that is, my friends, I would like to tell you this evening, there is something about a person that lives godly and behaves himself wisely that is fearful to the ungodly, those that don't know the Lord. Now, what was Saul's problem? Jealousy. That is what I'd like to talk about tonight. You say, well, that's not much of a revival meeting sermon. My friends, tonight, I want to tell you that I believe that the sin of jealousy is a sin of the spirit. You know, we look sometimes at those that are out on the street and they're doing drugs and they're in all kinds of problems. They're in alcohol and they're in tobacco and in horrorism or whatever. And we can see that and we can, we can deal with those things. But jealousy, my friends, tonight, I'd like to tell you, is a sin of the spirit. And there's very seldom that you're able as a church leader or church brethren, godly brethren, that we are able to put our fingers on it. Why? Because it's always justifiable. It's hard to get to. That's why I believe that it is a duty of God-fearing brethren that have the Spirit of God's anointing upon their life out of discretion and not upon their own behavior and thought that they would deal with things like that. Those things left unchecked, my friends, are the next thing to death and murder. The things that follow that is gossip and slander. We don't, in our church doors, we don't have drunkards coming in and we call them saints. We have people coming in with white shirts on and they're dressed to the T. They've got their suits on. Oh, everything looks good. And the thing of it is, my friends, we could be hiding that spirit of jealousy in our hearts and no one knows it. But let me tell you, my friends, there's going to be those things that come out that are hints. There are hints. David loved, I believe, Saul. And he would not have stayed with Saul if he wouldn't have loved him. Look at what a beautiful relationship that could have been. I believe that Saul needed David. David had attributes that would have blessed Saul in a tremendous way. Saul was a man that had sold out to the devil. Why? We read in chapter 13, in 1 Samuel 13 and 15, we read there how that he was supposed to wait on Samuel to come and to do the sacrifice at Gilgal. And the time came and Samuel didn't show up. And so Saul went ahead. 
My friends, Saul did not start out like that. If Saul could have remained a humble man, we read in the Bible, is it in 9, chapter 9 and 10 of 1 Samuel, we see there when Israel wanted a king, you know, Samuel didn't want to give him a king, but God said give him what they want. It wasn't to their good. Why did they want a king? Because they wanted to blend in, my friends, with the heathens. They wanted to be like the neighboring churches. God wanted to be their king and lead them. But no, they wanted what was nominal. They wanted what the people wanted. God let them have what they wanted, even though later God repented that he had made Saul king. Saul was a humble man. The Bible says that his father, his father Nesh, it says Kish, I believe was his father's name. I don't know exactly the story, every, all the details, but Kish was his father. And you know, when they came to seek him out, there was Saul. He was a very goodly man, and the Bible says he had goodly behavior. And when the day came to anoint Saul, where was he at? They looked for him, and he wasn't to be found. He was somewhere. He was gone. Where was he at? He was hiding, I often hear, in the baggage. The Bible, I believe, says stuff. He was hiding in the stuff. Tonight, I would have rather been underneath the podium here or the pulpit or underneath out there in the prayer room and had the Lord teach this message. The thing that I see about, about being in the limelight is the fact that you are more accountable. There's a lot of people that think that great responsibility is some kind of a noble thing. But my friends, the more responsibility you have, as I told Brother Nelson today, we were talking, the greater accountable we are. It's exactly opposite from the way the world works. The greater position you have, so to speak, the more untouchable you become. And you don't dare go to the preacher or the evangelist or the bishop because you've got to approach him in some kind of a real diplomatic way because he's such a hierarchy. Let me tell you, my friends, in the kingdom of God, we have different roles. And I look at my role, one, as is very humbling. It is probably one that is a lot more accountable than the janitor or the usher or the Sunday school teacher. But in the kingdom of God, there is no superiority. There is equality. I believe that. In the roles that we have, let's use the allegory of a wife. She is not less than in the grace of God, in the eyes of God, than a man is, but she respects the man as Sarah respected Abraham. In 1 Peter, I believe, chapter 3, verse 7, you can look that up. There's different roles, and we respect everyone. Saul was a very humble man. He was a man that I believe wanted to do what was right. But let me tell you, my friends, I believe many a good leader and man have been destroyed because they have been lifted up too high. And tonight, and these revival meetings this week, past week, and the week to come, if there is any success, if there is any glory, if there's any nobility, we dare not touch it with the smallest of our fingers. It's the Lord's work. We humble ourselves, and we want to hide behind the cross. We see here the thing of jealousy. When it enters in, my friend, you know David was a goodly man, and he came there, and he had taken care of Goliath, and I believe that really spoke to Saul, and yet I believe Saul was a bit shaking in his shoes at that time already. Why? Because let me tell you, my friends, the reason that his life was opened up the way it was to the darkness of the world is because of his disobedience. He was a man that when he went against what Samuel had said, there was punishment for that. And we can't get around it. We cannot get around it. We may think we can, but we will have dire consequences. The Bible says, I believe it in the Psalms. I can't get the verse right now, but it says, pardon me, but it says, that God is going to send them leanness of soul. And I believe tonight, without a shadow of a doubt, if we are told and commanded something, the word of God, and we profess the name of Jesus Christ, 
and we are willing disobedient, my friends, there's going to be blessings withheld held from us, and God's not going to be able to speak to us. Why? Because we have harbored disobedience. If he would have repented, I believe God would have been merciful to him. But he didn't. Why? He was too proud. And then when Samuel told him to destroy their chapter 15, I believe it is, in 1 Samuel, it says there, to destroy the Amalekites. Had to do with sin. The world. It was like this in the Old Testament. It was a type of sin. They would destroy everything. But back to chapter 13. Let me tell you, my friends, this one thing. When Samuel came and he said, what hast thou done? He said, I, I was afraid that the Philistines were going to come and make war with me. I, I was pressured by the people. I did this. I did. That was his problem. There was too much I. And then when he was supposed to destroy everything, the Amalekites, even down to the king, he didn't. He didn't. Do you think that that first disobedience not repented of made that he didn't have the strength for the second commandment he had? I believe it was a digression, just degraded, just, just went down, just went down. And finally, the Bible does say that the Spirit of God had departed from Saul and an evil spirit of the Lord had entered into Saul. That is sad. An evil spirit of the Lord have you ever heard of that? Just think about that. It's in the word of God. An evil spirit of the Lord had entered into Saul. He had tried to kill to get him out of the way, and yet David was his cupbearer. David continued to love him. The Bible says, let's turn to, you don't have to, turn to Matthew chapter 6. It says there, in Matthew chapter 5, you know, we are to love our enemies. And I believe David was doing that very principle of the Sermon on the Mount. We are to love our enemies. You know, it says that we are to bless them and to do good unto them that hate you and pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. Why? That we may be called the children of God. David continued to be his cupbearer. Even in spite of the fact that David knew that Saul was after him. It was after him. And he chased him for seven years. And in Psalms 28, in, in, in 1 Samuel 28, we read there, I forget the verse exactly, but in those verses it says, in chapter 28, that he needed direction because God did not speak to him no more. Neither did a prophet. So he wanted, he asked for a woman with a familiar spirit to give him direction. What's a familiar spirit? It's a demon. Even someone from the dead would come back and give him direction. He had, he had fallen that far from grace, that far from God. Why? Because of disobedience. And I believe that a person that is disobedient to the things that they know, willingly disobedient and rebellious, my friends, are going to open themselves to all kinds of sins. And this sin was a sin of jealousy. The sin of jealousy. Jealousy deteriorates character. You think you can hide jealousy in your life tonight? And you know what that does? It does nothing more than deteriorate our character. That's what happened to Saul. Jealousy left unchecked is only one step away from murder. Jealousy starts when we resent a rival or a peer. David out shepherding the sheep was no threat to Saul until he came into his realm. He became a threat because he behaved himself wisely. He knew that the spirit of the Lord was with, Samuel, uh, with David and he had departed from Saul. He knew that. And the more that he seen David behaving himself wisely, the more threatened he was. And he became jealous. Can you imagine with me tonight the success of the work of the church and our mission fields if we could be completely rid of feeling threatened from fellow workers, from the board, but to be obedient and to do our job. I say that for what it's worth. I've been on the mission field. I know what can happen. A lot could be accomplished if we wouldn't care who gets the glory. 
But we're always looking at who, you know, what's what's happening, and you know, we 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 don't want our deeds to go unchecked and noticed. It leads to wishing that he or she was removed, removed. And then it manifests itself in ways to harm their reputation, depreciate some person, their action, in every little way possible. I'm talking plain tonight. Saul desired to kill David because he was jealous of Saul's popularity. Yet David continued to be his armor bearer. Drink the wine before he drank so there's no poison. If there is, David would die. He had a level of friendship like Jesus shared with us in John chapter 13. That we love our neighbor in a way, our brother, that we would give our life for him. That's the way he loved Saul. And he continued to love him. You know, when we think about Saul out there after David, how many times would he have had opportunity to repent, but he didn't? When David held a piece of his garment up and said, you know, I visited your camp last night. And you know what? By the way, I had a sword. He did not harm the Lord's anointed. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. How many times have you felt like a person that you have felt like had been some kind of jealousy, envy towards you, and you have just felt like somehow lashing back? Or then there's two ways that we respond when we feel that perpetrated on us. We would like to respond back in kind, or we would like to hide and become reclusive. Now, on the flip side of using your gifts, we need to be understanding and discreet in the fact that we don't, that we don't provoke one another to jealousy, that we do it because it is a gift and not our talent. A talent is given to all of us. I spoke a little bit about that last night to the young people. A talent is given to all of us, at least one. It becomes a gift as you consecrate that under the blood of Jesus Christ. And a gift is to give away to the church, the body of Jesus Christ. It's no longer ours. God has just made us vessels to carry about that work. So have you ever been the person that was on the line that was jealous? Of, people were jealous about you for some way in some way. I think that jealousy is a large part of deterioration of relationships. I don't know how you feel about that. But almost every relationship I know that has gone sour, there was jealousy involved. In church struggles, it may not be what color socks you wear or whatever, but it's oftentimes something deeper than that. We can, it's easy to just have some kind of a guideline about how we should kind of collectively as a community dress, bless one another according to the principles of God. But when we have things like envy and jealousy and things like that within our midst, I'll tell you what. Jealousy deteriorates character, and it can deteriorate the very core holdings of a congregation if that is left unchecked. I know. Saul's popularity made him proud and arrogant, while David remained humble. And in verse 18, he said, who am I? Who am I? Even though David was famous and succeeded in everything he did, he refused to use his popularity against Saul. Praise God for that example. I'm just bringing these examples out. He refused to use his popular support against his advantage against Saul. Don't ever allow popularity to twist your perception, to twist who you are, or your very importance. It's easy to be humble when we're not at center stage, but how's it going to be when we are on center stage? Will we react in humility, can a man handle praise? I believe a man can handle commendation if it's done not in a flattering way, but in honesty. And I believe there's room for that. But lest a leader or someone is lifted too high, God forbid. It is not good for them nor the congregation. It does never work good. We're humble men. We are to humble ourselves. The greater responsibility we have, the more humble we are to become. Doesn't mean we're weak, compromising, but it means we are humble. Three things that jealousy does, that is destroys trust, confidence, and peace. The very foundations of interpersonal relationships. Number two, it hampers progress towards 
important goals. It clouds our understanding and judgment. When we have jealousy in our hearts and we are so occupied with that, it's, it's consuming us. It's hard for us to make good, proper, godly judgments. Jealousy makes us self-centered rather than God-centered. Jealousy is all-consuming. Why? Because we're preoccupied. It's all about three people, and that's usually just me, myself, and I. When we think of Esau, he was blinded with jealousy because of Jacob, the birthright. He sold out to the devil. He sold out to his belly. He sold out a pot of, a pot of beans or whatever that was, pottage, I believe it said. He sold out his birthright for that. How many of us do that? We sell out cheap, and then when we see a person behaving himself wisely, we become threatened, and we want to remove them somehow. So we, the first thing we do is depreciate their character. How about Laban? Laban treated Jacob very unfairly. I'm not saying Jacob was a perfect man. He wasn't a perfect man. But these are examples of schoolmaster in the Old Testament to bring us to Christ, to show us the way in a lot of these things. Jacob actually made Laban to prosper in a lot of ways. And Laban knew that. And yet he tried to trick him. And Laban treated him very unfairly. And still God prospered Jacob. Why? Because I believe that he wanted to do that which was right. God is blessed, able to bless you even when others mistreat you. You believe that? I believe that. To respond back negatively is no different than what the heathen do. Or the one perpetrating against you. There was a place in the Bible where the disciples, they came up. This man had his son. And he came up. And uh, they asked the disciples, this man, you know, he's foaming out of the mouth. He's got an epileptic spell or something going on. But actually there was a demon in there. I'm going to turn to that. It's in uh, Luke. You can turn to it if you want to. Luke chapter 9, verse 49 and 50. 49 and 50 in Luke. And there it says that in verse 49, And John answered and said, Master, to Jesus, I saw one. He was casting out devils in, my, in thy name. And we forbid him. We forbade him from doing it because he followed not with us. And Jesus said unto him, forbid not. Don't forbid him. For he that is not against us is for us. In verse 40 in the same chapter, it says there that I besought thy disciples. This man with the son, he told Jesus, I besought thy disciples. And, you know, he couldn't cast them out. They couldn't cast them out. So the thing, what happens so oft times is that our own pride is often hurt if someone else succeeds where we have failed. And what was the disciples' problem? The Bible says, Jesus said, because of thy faith, thy little faith. There are times when people succeed where we have failed. And you know what? That just hurts us. Our pride is just, ugh, it's just about more we can take. So instead of blessing, you know what we do? We try to turn around and bring all kinds of things in the path of that person or those that succeeded. God forbid. This is the work of the Lord. If they're not against us, they're for us. We have all these little religious castles set up. And, you know, we're not in competition with each other. We all have our form of doing things. We respect that. We stay within that. And we bless one another. If they're not against us, they're for us. As Jesus said in my own parable uh, phrase here that, you know, there's no room for this type of jealousy in the kingdom of God. Jealousy can lead to a lot of things. What about the ten brothers that wanted to put their brother away? Kill him because of a robe and a few dreams. Their jealousy had grown into rage, complete rage. Jealousy can be difficult to recognize because our reasons for do it, to do what we do, make sense. And we try to justify ourselves. Jealousy left unchecked grows quickly and leads to other sins of hate and slander and gossiping and depreciating one another's character. 
The time to deal with jealousy, my friends, is when you catch yourself keeping score of what another person has or what they are doing or where they're going or what they're wearing. The time to deal with jealousy is when you find yourself keeping score. We need to repent. Jealousy deteriorates character. Paul includes jealousy the same as drunkenness and wantonness and lust and all kinds of things. I'm not going to turn to it. That's found in Romans chapter 13, the first four verses. No, it's in chapter 13, verse 12 and 14. Paul knew all about jealousy. When the Jewish people, the leaders, motivated a riot because of his popularity, Paul and Silas, they were out there preaching the gospel. It was different from what they had heard. It was different than the scribes and the Pharisees. And the house of religion of that day wanted to hear. And they most certainly did not want Paul and Silas to be spreading this around. They came to the council. They brought these men to the council and said they're turning the world. What? Upside down. Yes, in Acts 17, verse 6. They're turning the world upside down. Have you ever been involved in turning the world upside down? You know what would happen? The religious fireworks would fly. You know, they'd bring hoses out there and they'd water you down. They were turned upside down. So they brought him before the council. Jealousy in the, in the dictionary, the old Noah Webster is what I use some. Suspicion that one may enjoy some good which we deserve, desire for ourselves. Suspicious that we do not enjoy the affections and respect of others. Or that another is going to be loved more and appreciated than what we are. It's emulous. It's full of competitions. And it's, it's fearful and insecure. When we think of competitions, how much of that is in Shenandoah Valley? How much is it in Lincoln, Missouri? Well, we're situated in a place where we don't have a whole lot of other congregations or Mennonite people to compete with. We just want to compete with the word, the word of the Lord. We want to stay in that. We're in a very poor area, and uh, that's okay. But you know what? Sometimes maybe that's the best. Because, you know, I've found that when we're in a big area, there's a possibility. The possibility could be there that people want to keep up with the Joneses. And if they can't, they'll try to make it tough on them. But you know what I've found with trying to keep up with the Joneses? I've learned that a long time ago. Every time I try to keep up with them, you know what they do? They refinance. So you can't keep up with the Joneses, okay? And so... We just become bitter, and we become envious, and we become jealous. Jealousy is a real close ally to envy. Jealousy, the way I look at it, is like before a good is lost by ourselves, and it converts itself to envy after that good is obtained by the other, as Saul with David. Jealousy is the apprehension of superiority. Remember that. If you have been hounded by the devil and he has used you to be jealous over your brother or sister, tell him to get out of your life in the name of Jesus Christ. You know what? Don't waste your time with it. You know what's happening? You're actually the victim of Satan, not the one that you're jealous about. They're also hurt. Everybody loses in a situation like that. It's easy to rejoice with them that rejoice, isn't it? But to weep with them that weep. And to rejoice in the very principle, in fact, that those of your brothers and sisters may succeed. Can you rejoice when you see your brother or sister having a promotion? Or something, it's not that they're more important, but there is something that they may have been promoted. Are you jealous or do you bless them? Do you, are you grateful? Do you rejoice in others' success? In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in 26, it says, when one member suffer, you know what? We all suffer with that member. One member is honored, we all rejoice with that member, right? That's scripture. That's the gospel. That's the way we are to be. There's something like positive jealousy. Are you solicitous to defend the honor of your brother or sister or another concerning their character? If you hear of your brother or sister being decimated, their character being destroyed, are you willing to stand in the gap and say, listen, this is my brother or sister? How many times have you just joined in and deep down you have had this little bug in here that, you know what, this is just a good chance to really run him down. 
And so I'm going to just use this time to just put him down. Rather than to speak up and say, we're not going there. Are you solicitous of the relationship that you have with your brother or sister? Or are we just looking for the chance to run them down? There is something like a positive jealousy. The Apostle Paul was jealous over the church of Corinth. He said, I'm jealous over you with godly jealousy. Paul was concerned that the church's love should remain in Christ alone and not be affected by all kinds of false doctrine and carnal interest. Godly jealousy is actually, it's opposite of criticism. Godly jealousy manifests itself in heavy burden for your brother or sister, in prayer and encouragement. Criticism usually manifests itself in a slander and evil speaking and strife and contention and nitpicking and gossip and suspicion. Oh, suspicion's terrible. There's a bishop friend that lived in the community, Amish old order, that I knew was actually my distant cousin. And one of the members was one of my first cousins. She's, she's passed now. I was, uh, I'm in the old generation. My first cousins, have all, they're all older, a lot of them. And there was this Amish lady that was always nitpicking at my aunt. And finally the bishop went to her after numerous times and said, just what is wrong with Aunt Edna? He said, I want to get to the bottom of this. And Aunt Edna just looked like an Amish lady. And finally the woman said, well, and this has gone on for years. Finally the Amish lady said, well, she gook to gebickled. And I don't know how many Dutch people we've got out there, but you know what that means in, ger- ger- in English? She looks too ironed. She gook to gebickled. And then she got a load from the bishop. That was probably long overdue. But there's just things like that that happen, just little quirks. And we allow those things to become mountains. And finally, it's insurmountable. And it has gotten to the place left unchecked to where it has divided churches and relationships. And that is terrible. Jealousy is a depreciating and it is a destroying and deterioration of character. You open yourselves to that, my friends. Who did Saul go to after the sin of jealousy and he didn't repent? It was finally that the Lord didn't hear him anymore. He couldn't speak with the Lord. No prophet spake to him. He asked for a woman, the weaker vessel, with a familiar spirit to give him guidance from the dead. It's awful. Tonight, if you have that sin in your life, and if you know that you have perpetrated against a person, you've made it miserable for them, Tonight, I beg you in the name of Jesus to repent. Repent. The Song of Solomon, in 8, verse 6, it says that jealousy is as cruel as what? The grave. Why? How? How would you? How would you? The grave is cold. It is deep. And, you know, the thing of it is, we just want to put the person there and cover them up. It's cruel. Get rid of them. But you know what? Jealousy is never appeased. Once the person is out of the way and under six foot under, there'll be someone else. If you are here tonight and you have had a habit of doing that, not of covering people up in the grave, but of wishing they were out of the way, and that person finally is removed, who's going to be the next victim? Jealousy clutches and smothers relationships. Jealousy goes into bitterness and envy. And what does the Bible say in Hebrew 12, 15? It says that that bitterness is as a gall. When we butchered, Dad always said, don't cut into the gall. Why? Where the gall went, where it spread out over the meat, we had to cut the meat out. It defiled many. That's why it's so harmful tonight. If you have the sin of jealousy in your life tonight, it's not just affecting you. But let me tell you, you're the first victim of the clutches of jealousy. If you have that, it's unreasonable. It's on duty 24-7. Jealousy is unreasonable. It swells with poisonous thoughts and constricting its victim with self-imposing anguish. It is sin tonight, I'm telling you. It is sin and we don't need to sugarcoat it or look over it. If that spirit is present 
in our congregations. It is something that in our lives we have to get rid of it. It has got to go because it will destroy many. It will destroy many. A person that exercises equality is often going to be a victim of jealousy. Why? Because he's only doing what, is, what he knows is right. He's working not with respect of person, but he's working out of vulnerability by being in equity. Treating everybody the same as much as possible. And I believe that's so very important. We have David relationships and Jonathan relationships. The deterioration of character... People who are secure in themselves with God as their leader let go of resentment and jealousy and they focus on joy. The gratitude attitude, I believe, is very important. I just wrote these few things down here tonight. Gratitude journals, I believe, are very important. We become less focused on what we think we need to have. Uh, We become less focused on who we are and more on the needs of others. Rather than focusing on people that succeed, you know, uh, and, and where, are they stealing the stage? Are they getting the recognition? We bless them in their successes. There is one thing that has aided in the devil's mileage that he's getting out of the church and his people, his saints, is the thing of social media. And may I say tonight, I believe that it can be used for good. But everything that comes out that's good, it seems the devil takes it and perverts it. When you see social media, and I had a brother, several brethren already tell me they just hate to look at social media because the thing of it is, every time they look at it, they just there's something that stirs in them and they become... They, they, they become jealous that this man's got a bigger truck or the most beautiful pictures are on there. And, you know, the thing of it is, it's just a highlighted reel, I believe, of the best photos. I've been to the trendiest places and I'm standing there with my wife. Everything is so glib and good. It's painting a picture of something that's not really real. And we look at our friends on there and we become jealous And there's something that works in us. And, of course, they all have the most life-altering news on there. It's a very up-to-date, juicy stuff running out of the side of their mouth. And, oh, I just like to be like that. There's one thing that social media has done. It has made people more jealous, and it's made them more lonely. There was a lady that her house burned down. And she had over a thousand friends on her Facebook. And when her house burned down, not a one of her virtual friends showed up. Are they really friends? We live in a virtual society. My friends, life is bigger than that. It's got to do with relationships and to knowing who is our leader, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our leader. Another thing where people compare themselves among themselves is not wise. We do not do that. That's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. Going to prison, and I'll go and over at Fulton Prison, the uh, Mennonite church asked me to go with them to preach there times. They have what they call management for anger. Have you heard of anger management? That's the way the heathen deal with anger. Is that the way you are tonight with jealousy? We try to manage it. We try to manage the things that aren't so good in our lives. Why? Because we don't want people to think bad of us. We just want them to think good of us. So tonight, if you have jealousy in your life, I'm going to ask you to search your heart. We're going to close with prayer. We're going to ask you to just search your heart as we keep our eyes closed after prayer. And we do some soul searching tonight. Jealousy is something that can lead into a lot of other sins. And let me tell you, my friend, it often doesn't stay with the person that has it. It becomes as a bitterness that many hereby and within are defiled. And so let's bow our heads for prayer as we close tonight.
Heavenly Father, we think of the virtual the good things of the Bible. We think of uh, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8, which says there that finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, pure and lovely, Lord, that we are to think upon those things. If there's any virtue and praise, we are to meditate upon these things. Lord, help us to have discernment and give us a grace, Father, in a powerful way. Your grace is sufficient. It's already there. Help us just to have the grace to reach out and to experience that grace. Tonight, I pray a blessing upon this gathering. This assembly tonight, made up of a lot of different people. Father, you love every soul tonight. And you can see into the hearts tonight of everyone. And there's rooms there, perhaps. And Father, tonight, if there is a room that is harboring something of a spirit, a sin there that has been covered pretty good, we've managed pretty good. Lord, tonight I pray that the bars of iron would be broken and the gates of steel and brass, Father, would come down tonight in the name of Jesus Christ. I do pray in thanksgiving. Thank you for meeting us here. In your name we pray.